everyone, this is Josh from Solopreneur Grind for episode 61 of the Solopreneur Grind podcast. I'm here with Keith from Segmetrics. Keith, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Awesome, Keith. Super excited to hear about the company and everything that's actually led up to it. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, yeah. So in a nutshell, I am a digital marketer slash developer uh, who has been doing this for digital marketing about 10 years, programming, gosh, 25, got almost 30 years, I guess. And I have done everything from being a freelancer to working at a standard uh, salaryman type of company to running an agency to being a consultant to now I think my third SaaS app that I'm working on uh, that that's kind of the main thing right now and yeah and it's been a it's been a long journey which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit but uh, yeah it's enjoyable and that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, that, that's super exciting because uh, especially our listeners who are looking to get started, there are so many options out there, right? Agency oh, yeah. owner, freelancer, uh, employee. So it sounds like we'll get a little bit of a, of a taste of each one, which is awesome. I've gone through every step of the way. Yep. <laughs> so I, I already know we'll, we'll be having a little comparison question at the end for, uh, for the pros and cons of each. But Keith, I'd love to first, let, let's hear some of those details. So when you yeah. were growing up, like how, how early did some of this stuff start? Were, were you entrepreneurial in high school? Is this stuff that kind of happened during university or, or afterwards? Yeah, it's funny. So I never thought of myself as entrepreneurial. I still really don't. Um, but looking back on it, I definitely was. So at age six, I actually took frozen spinach from the freezer and went door to door trying to sell it. And my neighbors called my mom at work just to tell her that uh, your son is going trying to sell frozen spinach to everyone in the neighborhood. What were you doing? Like selling I, by the handful or? Just a package. You know, they came in the little cardboard packs back in the day. And I just mm -hmm. was taking it to each door and saying, hey, do you want to buy some spinach? <laughs> um, I have very little recollection of what actually happened after it. I just remember taking the spinach out and like starting to go to my neighbor's houses. So... Uh, Apparently, I was entrepreneurial. Um, I, it's interesting, though, because I never had that desire. I wanted to be a cartoonist uh, since age eight, I think hmm. it was. And I, it helps if you are good at drawing, and I really was not. Uh, so yeah. I kept that desire up until graduating college and never really got anywhere with it. I think it was about six months after graduating college when I was like, oh, wait, I like eating. And being a cartoonist, yeah. especially after the first dot-com um, bust, is not a great way to uh, continue eating and living in New York City. So right. I stopped that and went back to what I enjoyed as a hobby, which was programming. So I had actually kind of double majored in development and visual arts in college. At the time, that was a combination that didn't mean anything. Like they were so separate. Like this is the late 90s, early 2000s. There was no visual design and development really at the time. Like you had designers mm -hmm. and you had developers. But apparently this is, as we got into the, the startup world and the second dot com boom, this was really like the key unicorn feature set is designers who can program and programmers who can design because they can do everything, right? Mm -hmm. So I had kind of set myself up unknowingly into this setup of, yeah, this is a great saleable uh, skill. Mm -hmm. Then, because I'm a, I'm a dumb butt, I decided <laughs> to move to Japan and <laughs> taught English for three years. That was so, right out of your undergrad? That was a year after undergrad. So I had, okay. I had started the process in undergrad. It was a long process. And then when I found out that I wasn't making any money on my own, it was kind of like a good, I, I actually now have something that's going to pay the bill. So mm -hmm. shipped out to Japan, thought I'd do it for a year, ended up being three years, ended up getting married. Um, when my contract was up, I was like, well, I hate teaching. So what am I going to do now? Yeah. And I found a job at a Japanese startup. So uh, yeah, so I was the only American or foreign employer or employee. I was the only person who spoke English at the, uh, at the company. And I started as a technical translator and eventually worked myself up to head of development at the, wow. the company. So, and, and were, were you doing technical 
stuff, let's say, on the side while you were teaching? Were you primarily yeah, teaching English I for was those three years? Yeah, I was teaching English. And man, teaching English in Japan is a, is a comfy gig. It's hmm. good pay for where you live. And then I got out of work at 4.30 every day. And oh, so wow. I have a lot of time. Now, from 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock or whatever it was till 4.30, I was pretty much running constantly. But at 4.30 every day, I had a lot of time now to go program, to, to study Japanese, to do the things that I enjoy and the things that as I knew that I didn't want to teach forever, that I could start training myself to be, have saleable skills is really mm -hmm. what it comes down to. Got it. And, and so you get the job at this new company mm -hmm. and did you, did you have any plan in mind? Like, were you just like, oh, I'm going to try and work my way up the corporate ladder or no, did you, you have didn't. any side gigs going on? Mm, side gigs. I did have a side gig, I think my second year. Um, so I don't know if you know, uh, Patrick McKenzie, patio 11 on the internet. He was just getting to be really kind of internet famous at the time for, because what he was doing is he was running a side gig startup, a SaaS company, and he was just blogging about every single thing he did. Every time he hooked up Stripe or did a split test or did Google ads or whatever, and just sharing mm. every single thing that he did. And he just happened to live in the same town as me. And I knew him from Japanese class back when we were both teachers and he started his first SaaS thing. And he was like, Keith, you got to get in on this. This is awesome. Uh, it's so much better than working at a company. And so I think my second year is when I started building my first SaaS app and first like I had always done programs, but never something at the scale of a SaaS or a online thing like that. Um, I had right. mainly done smaller projects, business, e-commerce stuff, but never a, a system like that. Um, right. so, so that's where I started getting into that. Which, interestingly enough, that's what helped me be able to get the promotions and to go up in the company, which was that no one else had any of this experience of being able to rapidly create a software product for the web. And when I say no one, I didn't mean just in the company, I meant in most of Japan. Like this is a skill that was not available in Japan. And suddenly my company is able to build all these things in weeks instead of what enterprise would take years to build. Right. So th this turned into, even though it was something that was kind of like my side hustle, it really turned out to be a key um, feature and a key benefit for the company overall. Got it. And, and so you're kind of leveraging that to work your way up. And I guess, how did that end or, or what takes us to the next step of the journey? Yeah, so we got acquired by another company that was essentially like a child company of Toyota. So we would be a subsidiary of Toyota or something like that. And I had done work with that company before. I knew that they worked even longer hours than standard Japanese salary. So I went home at about 11 o'clock every night. Uh, they generally went home at two. Uh, there was one person wow. who lived near me and she said that she didn't usually get home uh, two to three nights a day because the train stopped or two or three nights a week because the train stopped running. Right. And I was like, right. I don't know if I really want to do that. Yeah. So I talked with my wife and I talked it over with the, and had a lot of hemming and hawing about that. And I said, look, I'm just not going to go with the company when we're acquired. And so it ended up half the people quit and went on to new places and so I started at that point doing freelancing. Patrick had uh, introduced me to a couple of people who were looking for developers and um, online marketers. Uh, Growth Hacker hadn't really been created yet at that point. So that's why I turned into, but that's, uh, there were a couple of people who were looking for that type of work. And I said, yeah, let's try it. And so that's where I started working with Ramit Sadie over at I Will Teach. Oh, wow. Yeah, Interesting. I've... I've uh... I've read a bunch of his blog posts. Yeah, he's, uh, man, he is super smart. Like, it's interesting because my first real gig, like I had had smaller ones before them, but he was my first real big client. And he was the probably the best slash worst person to ever start your freelancing career with. Not because anything was bad, but because it was trial by fire. Like right. it was, he knew what he wanted. He had... A, time, a very aggressive timeline. He's like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it. And he's so freaking smart. 
right? Yeah. And he just has this way of looking at a problem from all these different angles. And I remember the first time we met him, we were over lunch and I have never had to think so hard in my life. And he's just asking me normal <laughs> questions. It's like, oh, where are you from? And then he like dives straight for the kill in these questions, very specific things that you had never even thought about because he's a, he's a psych major, right? Yeah. And it just blew me away. I was like, this is the man that I want to work for. Like he's just so brilliant. And I say it was rough as a freelance because it really set very different work styles than I think a lot of people are used to, especially me living in Japan. I'm working until 2 a.m. because he's in the U.S., right? So I'm, in, right. I'm still in middle and nowhere Japan at this point. And I'm working with a client who is U.S.-based in Eastern and Pacific time zones. And it's like, okay, juggling that time zone, juggling the work as well as, okay, we need to be able to have these communications and when we say, hey, we need this up in two hours, it needs to be up in two hours. So it was very, mm -hmm. it was rough, but it was thoroughly enjoyable. And I learned so much in this essential trial by fire, right? Right. What, what do you think are two or three things that set him apart from most people other than obviously, like there's no doubt you read just one piece of his content and you can tell he's a smart guy. Yeah. Uh, so there's obviously that, but could you tell us maybe one or two other things that he did really well or, or um, almost like approaches or, or strategies that we could try and emulate? There's two things. The first one is he said there, he always said there are no sacred cows. And what that meant to him is that there is nothing in the company that if someone says, hey, we're doing it wrong and here's the proof that he would not change. Right. It was very important for him to not have preconceived notions when there was data to back it up, right? And he was gonna mm -hmm. split test everything. He was gonna test everything. He, there was nothing that he said, oh, this is just the way it's done. He would start with that, but as soon as there's like, can we find a better way, then that was something that he would go full hog into. Um, the second thing is that he did not hire non-A players. And mm. it's, that is a difficult decision to make, especially when, we, when I started working with him, I think there was five of us, six of us, when you don't have venture capital, you don't have all this revenue to be able to do it, but he never scrimped on who he hired. He wanted to hire the best people for the job. And that beyond anything, I think is what enabled him to grow. There was no one on the team at any point who was just kind of phoning it in or just kind of there. And if there was, they weren't there for very long. Right. How, how was he able to keep so many great people uh, working so great for so long? Did, did he pay very well? Did he, pay was it, well. was it the challenge of, uh, and the, the benefit of working for someone so smart? Was it a combination? I think the biggest one was the challenge. I think there, for me, there were three. I mean, the, the pay was good. Um, that's always going to help, but there was mm -hmm. a challenge about it. And then there was the success about it. And there was never a time when we felt that we were just a cog in the wheel. And that is something mm -hmm. that's very important and very hard to reproduce. And that's something that I struggle with in my company a lot, um, which is making people feel like they are vested and part of the process and that we value them. And we do, but it's very hard to make someone feel like that on a day-to-day -day basis. And I Gosh. think even Ramit was not great at that at the time. I mean, he's not a touchy feely person, right? But mm -hmm. for me, I didn't need the email that said, Hey, thanks for a good job. Although he, he eventually started doing that and was very good at it. For me, it was the holy crap, this thing that we just put together in 10 days made us a million dollars. And it's like right. that, that is, I mean, I didn't get a million dollars, but we succeeded, <laughs> right? We built this thing and we're able to accomplish something awesome. And especially when you're younger, because I was, uh, I don't know how old I was at the time, but uh, like my, my kid was only two years old at that point. And I was still in that, oh my God, I'm going to work myself to the bone because it's awesome phase, right? And now right. I'm, I'm older, I'm going to be 40 this year and I'm just kind of, I'm a little more settled. But at the time, like getting success was the number one thing. For sure. And at that point, were you freelancing? Did you have more than one client? Kind of what, what was your setup or, or let's call it like professional status at the time? Off and on. So we 
I had a number of Japanese clients. We were actually pretty big. We got up to 12 people. Um, Ramit was probably our largest client at the time, but I had a number of Japanese companies that we were working with. Um, I had a number of US and European companies that I was working with doing various things, doing um, development work or doing some of the conversion rate optimization that I had been doing with Ramit, um, the design work and that kind of stuff. And one of the interesting things was, and I, I look back at this now, is there was none of this marketing technology that we have now. Like if you wanted to mm -hmm. build a webinar, you were not, there was no webinar system. There was no webinar jammer ever webinar. There was no, mm -hmm. like if you wanted to do a contest with referrals, you had to build that stuff yourself because there was no kickoff labs or any of that stuff. And so, and there was no proof, right? I remember when mm -hmm. we built proof for I will teach, you know, the little pop-up that says so-and-so just bought, right? Yeah. Yeah. We had to buy that because it didn't exist or we had to build that because it didn't exist. And it's interesting to see all the technology that we built now becoming standard for the marketing, for the marketing world. Right. Very cool. What would you suggest to someone who is hoping to get started in some freelancing on their own? What were some of the keys that got you kind of off the ground or brought in those first few clients? I think getting out there, I think is the first one talking to everyone. Um, conferences, I think are really good. And one of the things, and being part of the conversation, whether that's on Twitter or like I said, conferences or just being it or Slack chats, being in that area, I think is always very useful. I think one of the core benefits that we have now is that we don't have to be physically located in the same place as our customers and our clients, right? I was in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere, Japan, and I was working with someone in New York City. It's like, it doesn't matter anymore. And being social and being helpful, I think, is the number one way to get your name out there and to be recommended by people and not to be too shy and to say, oh, people will come to me naturally. And that's really mm -hmm. not going to happen, I don't think. I think asking people and telling people, hey, look, I've been doing this for, for years or, hey, I'm trying to branch out into something new. Do you know anyone who's looking for this? And that's mm -hmm. a way to get a good foot in the door. And I know this, this is my opinion is probably going to be very different than a lot of think pieces and stuff that I see on Twitter. But I think you have to hustle when you get that first gig. I think especially if you're starting out, you want to make a name for yourself. You want to be known as someone who is able to get stuff done, who is a self-starter and who works very dedicated. And that doesn't mean having to kill yourself by working 12 hours a day or whatever. But I think it's important to, especially at the beginning, especially when you're young and have that extra energy to kick butt a little bit more than you normally would. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The, the better job you can do for those first few clients, especially can pay off major dividends down the road. Uh, so Keith, what happens next? So, so you're working as a freelancer, you, you bring on multiple clients, it sounds like you have some really good learning experiences. Mm -hmm. How long did you freelance for? And then what was the catalyst to whatever happened next? So it was very organic. So I freelanced for probably I'd say eight months or a year. And then I brought on my first kind of subcontractor and then I brought on another and then I kind of built up pretty quickly after that. I'd say within three years, we were at a 12 person company. Wow. Um, yeah. And just because we had a lot of stuff to do. And, um, and that was most, mostly what you mentioned before, development and, and some marketing, digital marketing, stuff like that. Exactly. And then I was, I had a lot of energy at that time looking back on it, but I was doing events both in the US and Japan. So I had an event manager, I had a Japanese wow. marketer, I had a US marketer. And so I was flying everywhere and taking the train down to Tokyo twice a week to go to meet meetups and to talk with people and all that stuff. Um, yeah. So it was just very, very busy. And then we ended up moving back to the US. And the Japanese side, I, I had kind of died down. The reason we were so focused on the Japanese side was A, because I had a lot of connections at the time, and then B, because the, this was right during the housing crash, and the dollar was worthless, just absolutely mm -hmm. worthless. And so it made sense to work on the Japanese side to get that Japanese yen, because it, the US dollars were not converting as well as you would like. 
right? Um, so as the U.S. economy bounced back, it became less important to have the Japanese clients because they didn't pay as well comparatively with exchange rates. And we started just slowing that side down and focusing only on Europe and the U.S. Ended up moving to America, which we kind of cut part of the, we cut the Japanese side out. And then we had kind of just a, what were we, five person agency that was remote, but only in the U.S. And we did that for two years. And then hmm. last three years, maybe last year uh, in January, I decided to stop the agency and focus solely on Segmetrics. And the, so Segmetrics had been a product that we've had for four years and it started off really well. And um, we had a lot of initial interest. We instantly jumped up to like, I think 1K or 2K MRR, like within a month, um, we were doing really well. And then it just sat there for two years. Right. And we were- Before we get into more details on yeah, that, yeah. Keith, can you- because so I'm super interested in hearing about exactly what it does and, and this next step of the journey. But I know there's a lot of interest around uh, agencies these days, mm -hmm. and it sounds like you did a pretty good job of growing and managing yours. Could you give us a few pieces of insight into how you were able to do that and and run it effectively? Any tips around hiring and and managing, especially remote contractors and things like that? So the core thing you have to have if you're going to do an agency is a great project manager. Uh, if you are not someone who is a great project manager, you need to find a great project manager. Um, that is probably the biggest thing that is a, will make you succeed or fail. Because when I had a great project manager, everything went really well. When I didn't, then things started to fall apart. Uh, so that would be number one. Number two is that you it's very difficult to have project manager people who are core to the business be consultants or freelancers. You want them to be 100% dedicated to the company. And the reason behind that is because you want them not necessarily to be working on their time off, but if they're thinking about six different clients that they have, they're not, on their time off, they're not necessarily thinking about you in that kind of shower way. Right. They're not, right. there's nothing gestating about you in their mind because you're competing with five other clients. But if you have someone working with you full time, there's that shower thought gestation kind of period where you're like, oh, you know, it would be freaking awesome for me to do on Monday. And that's the kind of thought process and the dedication that you want is this idea that someone's fully vested in uh, your company with you. The third thing, and this is the last one that I would look at is, and this is a mistake I made. I thought that you could get a group of really smart people together and build an agency. And you most certainly cannot. It, <laughs> it does not work like that. Um, I think that is good for a consultancy um, kind of group. Like if you had like a, like a number of lawyers, like you have lawyer uh, attorneys and partners and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. When you have a group of really smart people who are semi-independent, but working together on things, I think that works. But as an agency model, it does not work because I think that the people who are, who fit into that mindset are also not the people who will do ta do the repeated tasks that need to be done for an agency. And I am 100% one of those people that cannot do that. That's why we don't do Facebook ads because Facebook ads every single day, you need to look at these ads, pull the numbers, do reports, make decisions every single day. And that's just mm -hmm. not something that works with my mental, the way that I think. And with a lot of those kind of self-starter consult, high level consultants, that's also not how they think. And that's why they usually get other people to do that. And then they make decisions. And then at that point, you essentially have an agency. Right? Got it. So, so is that, is that one way of saying that you're better off just having one person kind of run the show or, or be the main, let's call it company leader? No, I don't think that you need one person, but I think that there needs to be a, I think what I guess what the better way to phrase it is to say you as an agency, you need to do things that are highly repeatable and get people who are able to do it highly in a highly repeatable way. And that's how you have success as an agency. Um, if you have a consultancy, 
A consultancy is a group of people or a person who is able to solve very difficult problems, but does not generally do the grunt work. They're not going to code up your page. They're mm -hmm. going to tell you what goes on that page. They're going to maybe give you a wireframe, but they're not going to actually be the one that's coding it up with an agency. They're the ones who are doing the kind of work, the everyday work to get things accomplished and to get things done. And I have found in my experience, you can't have a lot of really creative people doing that because they get very bored doing the same thing over and over again. Got it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So, so let's hop back to the story where, where you left off uh, segmetrics. Uh, I mean, number one, what is it? And number two, uh, what was it that started the traction? And then what was it that made you say, you know what, it's time to shift over to this from the agency? Yeah, so, so what it is, Segmetrics is a analytics platform for marketers. So specifically, it helps you see lead uh, and revenue attribution specifically for marketers. So how much are people worth if they come from Facebook? How much are people worth who view a webinar to listen to my podcast? How about if they listen to the podcast and attend a webinar, etc.? So it's essentially really good actionable analytics for digital marketers. And the reason we built this is because there really aren't that many other tools that do this. And the ones that do are very focused on enterprise and agent and developers. So like Mixpanel would be the closest thing that uh, to our software, but Mixpanel, you have to send in every piece of data yourself. And if you send in the wrong data, your data is wrong. So what we do is we actually just slurp in all the data from all the tools you're already using, using their APIs and are able to do our magic to make it so that you can search and understand your marketing. So cool. that, yeah, that's what, that's what it does. It's actually much cooler than what I just described, <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm actually more interested in talking about the, the why behind segmentics. I think I more so than, Oh, let's track stuff. I think that people listening to this are more interested in like, a, like you said, why did we decide to do this? And B, why did we get so much traction? Then why did it stop? Um, so I've always liked building software. And the, as I had mentioned, so we'll do a, with our clients, we'll do a $10 million, $20 million launch. We work our butts off and we get paid our standard fee, right? So there was a desire within the company of, hey, we know how to do this stuff. We've been doing this for a decade now. Why don't we do this for ourselves? Why don't we build something and promote it and get this thing out the door? Um, and so we, this is our third SaaS that we had built. Um, and it kind of hits that sweet spot right where we are with the conversion rate optimization and the marketing and all that fun stuff. And so we built it, we had, and in the first month or so, because it was such a great product and we had shown it to people, uh, we got a lot of people signed up and they stayed for a long time. But the issue was that we were also running an agency at the same time. And right. we are looking at a, whenever we decide to do work, we're looking at a very concrete example of, okay, if I work for this client for an hour, I get, or the company gets X hundred dollars. If I work for an hour on Segmetrics, we get bupkis. Mm -hmm. It improves the product, but it's not a one-for-one -one, uh, translation of time to money. And that was a very hard thing for the company and the, the people in the company to kind of make that mental shift because we had been done doing agency work for so long, right? Right. And so- How, how did it even start though, Keith? Because so I, that was actually my next question was I was going to ask about- uh, uh, kind of that, I guess you could call it internal debate of, of how to spend agency time. But what was the decision-making process to even start building the tool to begin with? So it was actually a challenge that we had. So we had at the beginning of the year, we had um, two weeks, I think it was, that we didn't have any client work. There was a, there was a lull in, that, in our pipeline. And we said, hey, what if we could make a SaaS in two weeks? Can we do this? And part of this was kind of a challenge because we wanted to start building SaaS for other people. And we we're like, could we do a two week MVP and sell that to people? That'd be awesome. Um, so we tried it. And in two weeks we had a fully functional app. Um, wow. 
yeah, it's, I mean, we had a lot of tooling built up around this. We had been doing this for 10 years. So right. it was really plugging stuff together, but we, in two weeks we had ugly as, as all get out, <laughs> but it was, it was a working app. And so that was kind of the, Hey, yeah, now we can do this. And then the hard part, I mean, the easy part is building it. The hard part is selling it. Right. So mm -hmm. that was, and then what started was the whole marketing and getting people excited about it and going to conferences and talking about it and all that stuff. And that had a lot of energy at the beginning because it was something new and we didn't have as much client work. And then of course, as the sales um, season started up again for our clients, everything got really busy and we weren't able to work on Sigmetrics. Mm -hmm. And then we got more time and we we're like, okay, let's go back to it. And we think about it. And then we got busy again. And then we're like, okay, now we got a lull. Let's go back to Nope. And we're busy again. It's like things right. just kept coming in and pulling us away from this thing that at the time was making us 2K when we were used to making 50 to 80K a, a month, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we tried like, hey, can we treat this as a client? But then we still had that same problem. It's like, okay, this Segmetrics client pays us 2K and this other mm -hmm. client pays us 5K or 50K. It's like, we can't make that it, it was very difficult to focus our own time on it mm -hmm. and then there was a second issue when so so this has gone on for a while at this point and then a year and a half ago i guess i i drew the line in the sand and i said we're going to do segmetrics we're going to stop doing client work we're going to focus on segmetrics we're going to get this thing done and we're going to we're going to build this up because we want to work on our own stuff and so what I did is I took on all of the clients and it was so stupid, but I did it <laughs> and I worked myself to the bone. So, so you took from, from then on all the client work you just did yourself and the rest yeah. of the team was to work was only on, on seg segmetrics. What, was there any pushback when you made that decision? There was not because everyone really wanted to work on Segmetrics. And it's not like I mm -hmm. took away their hours or took away their, their um, compensation or anything. I mean, they're, right. they're paid the same, but the reason was is because I wanted them to fully be thinking of Segmetrics and I would start transitioning the clients off. So mm -hmm. as we finished off, as I finished up each project, I would say, okay, now we're not doing that anymore. As we finish up this project, okay, we're gonna introduce them to another customer, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how, that was the plan. But what happened was we had, I mean, 10 years of saying, of a client saying, hey, I need a webinar and this is what it needs to be about and us standing up some pages. And we, there was a very transactional relationship there. And so suddenly they're in, the team is in a position of, okay, we need to set up a marketing strategy with our AdWords. Go. <laughs> and it's a, it's a blank sheet problem. Right. And it's like, yeah. And you're sitting there by yourself and they're saying they're by themselves and they're like, I don't know. And they had good ideas and, but they didn't get accomplished because we didn't have enough of a way to start on it. Right. There's very much that blank sheet problem. And so mm -hmm. that was very, that was very rough. And we tried and kept at it, I think for eight months and nothing ever worked. We tried a number of different strategies. We tried me working on everything. We tried, okay, Fridays we're doing our, uh, we're only working on Segmetrics. We're not doing any client stuff. We tried a number of different things and we just couldn't get it to work. Mm -hmm. And in January of last year, I had to make a decision. And I said, uh, I brought in um, a consultant that we had worked with before who knew everyone on the team who was just very, very into our problems that we were having and he spent every single day on a call with us or doing during stand-up and trying different things trying to find a way to fix it and at the end of january he said keith we just can't fix it and so mm -hmm. we decided to let everyone go so wow. we yeah, I found uh, places for everyone to work. So I introduced them to either other agencies or working for other companies um, one thing that was really important to me was that I was not going to leave everyone high and dry. Right. But mm -hmm. we just, we didn't have the money. If we stopped all client work, we didn't have the money to keep going and we couldn't keep going with Segmetrics and do the client work at the same time. So I had to make a decision and 
that was the decision I made. And so that, interestingly enough, is when things started really picking up. Um, I kept, I think, one client, maybe two, one and a half, two. And I started working fully on Segmetrics uh, and working on those clients when they needed work done. And so far, we have 8x revenue since mm -hmm. that, since uh, last February. And so it really makes me aware of, okay, if I actually put time into this, right. it'll actually start to grow. Um, it does make me sad that we haven't, we hadn't done that for four years. Um, because man, imagine where we'd be at right now if we just started this four years ago, but it is what it is. Right. Yeah. That, that's ex extremely interesting. You don't often hear about that kind of transition, right? It's uh, very interesting to hear about. I, I do want to focus more on the last year or so, Keith, but I, I have to ask, what do you think attributed to so much of your agency success? Because like I said earlier on, you know, it's, it's really popular these days, especially for a lot of people just starting out. Maybe they want to kind of freelance, digital marketing, web development, stuff like that. What do you think two or three of the keys were to your success and continuously bringing on clients or bringing back happy clients? I think it was just reputation at some point. We actually did no lead gen. Everything, oh, wow. Everyone was a referral. And it was just because I think we worked our asses off. Uh, I hope I can say that. Uh, <laughs> no problem. For, a, for years when we started. And I think that it had a problem with that as we got bigger and quality did go down um, because we turned from more in-depth into more of an agency side of things. And I think that that hurt. One thing that, and I think there was also a lot of at the right point at the right time because we really started at the second dot-com boom um, and we were able to kind of ride that wave in an, in a profession that really didn't exist, right? This whole digital marketer conversion rate optimization all started after we had started. So we were really poised well for that. Um, if I was to do it, do the agency thing over again, and Lord knows I will never do the agency thing over again. <laughs> um, I do like consulting. I like consulting a lot. The agency that, that doing everything low margin, uh, high turnaround um, stuff just does not interest me at all. Mm -hmm. But if I was to do that again, and the success that I have seen from other people doing agencies, I would focus on one core problem that is easily repeatable inside your company. That's very easy to put an SOP around that requires creativity, but is less about being creative every day and being creative once a month and then having strong processes that follow it up. So mm -hmm. one, one very good one would be, um, SEO. And I know a lot of people in this area and I'm good friends with um, some people who own agencies that are SEO for dentists. And apparently that's a very lucrative field, hmm. but it's something that is very repeatable. You have to have, you have to have smart people to be able to set up the strategy, but you need to have just regular people doing, and that sounds weird, but like you don't have to have A plus players doing the day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the clients want. The clients don't want A plus people doing that work every single day. They want a strong strategy and then you to implement on that strategy every single day. And those are the agencies that I have seen be very successful, which is really smart strategy followed up by very dedicated um, repeat, repeating within to accomplish that goal. What I don't see working well is when a agency does everything and every project is, okay, let's just be very smart for this client. And right. it's very hard to get clients like that. Um, it's very hard to do the work because you have to have very expensive A plus players. Even within our agency, one of the main things that we, um, that made a huge difference when we were getting new clients is when we started focusing on evergreen marketing funnels. And so we used to be a, hey, we'll do anything. And we get on these sales calls and it's so difficult because they're like, we're so excited to work with you, Keith. What can you do for us? I'm like, anything. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> they don't want to hear about that. But as yeah. soon as we started saying, you know what we do? 
we come in to a, a one-time sale or a launch that you did, we make that evergreen, you pump traffic into it, and then we improve it so that you get more and more money out of it over time. And we set up that whole thing. We do all the technology, we do all the marketing, we focus on evergreen funnels. And that's what we got, we were known for. And that's what people came in for. And then eventually those turn into bigger projects where we're doing other stuff as well, but that was that hook that got people in and got people interested. Because if you don't have that hook, you don't have that niche, people don't know what to do with you. Got it. That's some, uh, some really good advice. So let's spend the last few minutes talking more about Segmetrics. I'm especially interested in, you make the decision to focus on it. You make the decision that you do have to let people go and, and you, of course, help them kind of find, you know, their next step. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there full time working on Segmetrics what was that like? And I guess, what did you do next? Like what, what were kind of the key steps you took to start, uh, to start improving on that and, and growing it to where it is now? Yeah. So I guess the first six months were pretty much me just trying to find my footing again, because I'd been so used to having a team and I could no longer say, Hey, stand up some ads and they got stood up. So I had to, I had to go back and, and relearn a lot of this stuff and I had to re familiar eyes myself with the app and what our customers were doing and everything. Um, and really, so the first God, six to eight months were really just a lot of work and getting back into a mental state where I could improve this as much as I want to. And we got a lot of, I got a lot of development work done. I got a lot of improvements done. Um, and I think really that that's what that first phase was, which was, really trying to get the software to where I wanted it to be so that I felt comfortable with starting to run ads and to get people in there. Um, and that was kind of, I won't say a mistake. I think that was very important, but that whole idea of getting the software to where it needs to be, I think is a mistake. Um, I think that you should start trying to find that channel early because when you start that, and when I say channel, I mean a lead acquisition channel, right? Like how are you mm -hmm. going to start getting customers? Because the first channel you try is not going to be a success. And even if you find one that's eventually going to be a success, the beginnings, you're going to be getting eight clicks, 10 clicks, or you're going to, like me, spend $3,000 on Facebook ads and then find that they were all bots from the Ukraine, right? Like <laughs> it, uh, true story actually. Yes. And I, I was getting great click rates and it was great. And then I looked at where everyone was coming from. And it's like, why do I have all this stuff from Eastern Europe? <laughs> it, uh, yeah. So, I mean, so the idea that I had to wait for everything to be perfect before I started promoting was not a smart thing to do. And it, but it's something that I try that I still have to try consistently to overcome, which is promoting this stuff and getting it out there and not just being in the build it and they will come kind of mindset. Um, right. So that's, that's what happened with the app. And then as time goes on, I start needing to do more things. And I realize that I just don't have enough time in the day or the week or the month. And so our first uh, big hire was support because, oh my God, I hate doing support. Um, <laughs> it's the funniest thing. I like getting on calls with clients. I love getting, I love talking to clients, but any email that comes in, I just get freaked out and I'm like, oh my God, everything's exploding. I'm just going to ignore it. So having, <laughs> having a support person come in and look at those and kind of act as a buffer and say like, hey, Keith, you need to do this. I'm like, okay, I'll go do that. Mm -hmm. And it's just so much easier when someone else is on my team is telling me to do that rather yeah, than a we, customer. We all kind of have one, one or two of those kind of like irrational mm -hmm. types of tasks that just kind of freak us out unnecessarily. So the sooner yeah. you can recognize it and, and, you know, adjust as you, as you've done, I'm sure the better. And that was one thing that I think goes to the consultancy, the agency and the SAS that I think is core to remember is that you need to hire for, especially in the beginning, you need to hire for the things you hate to do. Mm -hmm. And because there are people out there that love to do the things that you hate to do. Really? I hate customer support. I like, not that I hate helping people, but I just, I get freaked out. Mm -hmm. Like going into help scout freaks me out. And my customer, my customer support guy that I hired, he loves it. He, yeah. he absolutely loves, he, he finds absolute joy in getting together and helping those people uh, in the email way. And I, it's just not something that works for me. And same with anything. There are people who love 
project management. There are people like me who love data analysis. Like you hate looking at numbers and seeing how well your marketing funnels are doing. There's someone who loves doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the core thing that you need to remember is that, especially when you're starting out, if something is a mental block that is preventing you from doing it, get someone to do it for you. Because that yeah. mental block is going to be so much, you're going to waste so much time dealing with that mental block over actually getting it done. I, I had a joke that was not so much of a joke that I was saying it takes me about three to four hours to answer a single support email because I'll, I'll see the email come in. I'll go get a cup of coffee. I'll sit down. I'll go use the restroom. I'll sit down. I'll open the email. I won't, I won't have read it yet. I'll go take a shower just to get ready and then like wake myself up. I'll come back in, I'll read it. And after three hours, it'll take me about 10 seconds to actually answer it. But it took me three hours to actually get around to, up to, to, it. to work up to it. Right. Yeah. It's like, and that yeah, can be we all have that. We yeah. all have that. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Keith, can you tell us, so, so that's kind of one of the core things that you've noticed as a pattern to any type of business that you've run or, or worked at. What's something more SaaS specific that maybe you didn't have to deal with in your agency or something that has really helped uh, Segmetrics that maybe you didn't even need when you were freelancing or running an agency? How do you mean? You mean a problem that I have in a SaaS or? Uh, I mean, really anything, but I would say something that people who have never started or run a SaaS company wouldn't have come across until they decide to start one. If that you makes need, sense. Yeah. You need a lot of technology to run a SaaS. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. the main thing. Like, so we have, uh, we have help scout for support. Um, we have Stripe for, uh, purchases and payments and stuff. I have emailing systems to market to people. I have systems that check if someone's credit card has. So this is a big one. When you're running an agency or a consultancy, there was never a failed credit card right? There was right. never a churn because a credit card number was wrong or anything like that. The amount of technology and money I spend each month trying to solve that problem is insane. That, and that it might be your next SaaS right there. there. There's some good ones out there. I recommend oh, yeah. churn, churn Buster is probably my, uh, my favorite one. Uh, Bear Metrics has a really good one as well. Okay. But it's, it's, there's just a lot of things like that that you don't think of. Um, the biggest one, honestly, is keeping in touch with your customers in a automated way. Because when you're an agency, you have an account manager, you, you can have that one-on-one. -on -one. When you have 800 customers, you can't do that anymore. So how do I notify people about a new feature or make sure that people, especially during onboarding, are looking at the right reports or getting set up correctly? And that's a big onboarding. Onboarding mm -hmm. is a huge one. When you have, when you're at an agency or a, or a consultancy, you have some, you have meetings and you call these people and you you have multiple things to get them onboarded. How do you do that at scale? How do you make sure that people click on the right things, get set up the right way, don't have things screwed up, and then if they do miss them, send them an email or get in touch with them. Like there's there's this whole thing that an account manager would do at an agency that mm -hmm. you now have to figure out how to automate in a way that doesn't beat people over the head. Because if you do too much, they're gonna ignore it. If you right. do too little, they don't know what they're doing. Like, we just had a big redux of our onboarding, and the number one thing that came out of it was, man, there's a lot of text everywhere. Mm -hmm. And no one was reading any of the text, because there's just so much of it, because there's a lot of things you have to do. And so people are just skipping everything and not looking at anything. And so how do we make it so that we have the, information that they need, but give it in a way that is very direct in as few words as possible. Right. You're scaring me away from SAS here, Keith. It's, but, it's uh, challenging. A, it yeah. is. I, tra I traded one pain in the butt for another, to be honest. Like I, The grass <laughs> is always greener, right? It is. It uh, is. Very, very interesting, Keith. So I, I do want to ask you one more kind of more general question. It's been really interesting hearing you navigate these different types of uh, we'll call them employ employment situations and entrepreneurial journeys. Are there resources or self-care practices or things that you made sure to maintain over time? How, how have you maintained your sanity and, and your health and your happiness over, over this, uh, what sounds like an extremely exciting 
uh, venture that I'm sure has its, you know, ups and downs like anything, but uh, interested in that side. Very poorly, very poorly. (laughs) Um, The ones that I do recommend, if you are in a rut and you aren't excited, definitely I would talk to someone, a professional counselor. Uh, I have done that. It was immensely helpful. Um, If you live in the North, like I do, I would definitely look at getting a uh, light therapy light, uh, light alarm clock during the winter because Mm. that will, sad is a thing. I did not think it would be before I moved here and oh my God, it kicked my butt last year. Where where Um, are you living right now? Portland, Oregon. Okay, because I'm in Canada, so I'm even further north. Yeah, and I can totally relate to that. I'm gonna have to look into that myself. Oh, it's wonderful. The Philips, the Philips uh, light alarm clock is wonderful. Um, yeah, because especially it's dreary here too. Like it's never sunny in the winters because it's raining all the time, and so mm-hmm. you have the rain plus the the late mornings and the early evenings, and it's, yeah, it's rough. Um, and then the last one that. I'm very bad at and I'm trying to get better at is to exercise. Um, right. I've started doing knock on wood. I can hopefully uh, keep this up, but I've started doing volleyball weekly and just getting out of the house, especially if you work remote because you're in the house all day. Yeah. Right. And it's just rough. It's just really rough. And that's, and those are the three things that I would talk about because honestly, and I, I don't think enough people realize this. And I think probably people on your show do the number one hurdle to your success as an agency owner, a consultancy, a SaaS, whatever, is your own mental state. Mm-hmm. At 100%, if you are in the zone and you're feeling great, you can knock out everything in a day. If you feel like crap, you're not going to get anything done in a month. And being able to manage, balance, and keep take care of your mental state is, I think, the number one most important thing you can do as a solopreneur. Totally agree. Keith, that's a, it's a great note to end on. This has been really interesting to hear about. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or Segmetrics, uh, would love for you to plug the Segmetrics website and then any socials, the company, or, or you personally, if someone would want to get in touch or follow up with you. Yeah, so Segmetrics, you can find at segmetrics.io. Um, there will be a link in the show notes. You can search for Keith Perhack, P-E-R-H-A-C, and that is there's only one of me. So yeah, you will find everything that I've ever done. And that's honestly why I kind of got into digital marketing is because I probably made some embarrassing posts back in high school and college. And I just want to bury those things like <laughs> never before. Awesome. As, yeah. as someone with a unique last name, I can relate. So yep. uh, awesome. Keith, thanks again for coming on the show. Josh, really thank you so it. much. It's been wonderful. Hey everyone, Josh here, checking in just one last time. Wanted to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. And if you want to keep getting more of the Solopreneur Grind content, make sure to join the email list. What I do is send three emails a week with additional content, such as what's going on in the background of my Solopreneur journey, insights I'm having on business, and updates when new podcast episodes like these come out as well. It's free. It always will be. The link to join is in the description of whatever podcast platform you're listening this to on. Really hope to have you on the list and continuing to share these awesome solopreneur journeys and insights with you as well. Have a great day and hope to see you soon.